Hello, and welcome to Shaking Scripture's Leaves, a podcast where we think through Scripture, one passage, one topic at a time, until we have shaken all of its leaves. This week, we're going to be finishing that series that I taught through the Book of Romans for my church's college ministry, and it's going to be on Romans chapter 11, Israel's future and the reliability of God's promises. This is going to be a fun one, including in addition to the actual message content, you'll be able to hear some off-the-cuff interaction between myself and some people in the audience. So I uh, I hope that my answers in that section, while unplanned, will still end up being helpful. I decided to leave them in, but I hope it's helpful. And we are going to be able to get going. So this is, this is the last one, guys. This is it. We've been going through Romans 1 to 11 for the entire summer, basically. Had a few weeks off here and there. But we're coming to the end of our series. And I feel the need to express my gratitude that you guys came. It's been an absolute blast for me, not only to have the opportunity to study Romans and to teach Romans but also the interaction that naturally takes place between myself and you guys, that even though there's a large segment of time that's me basically talking at you for almost an hour, there's also the natural interactions that still take place between speaker and audience, but then also the conversations that happen after the fact. It's been fantastic to answer questions. It's been fantastic to hear your guys' conversations. And I personally have had an absolute blast, and I hope that you guys have had even half as much fun as I have uh, because I've had a great time. And that's largely because of you guys. It's difficult to teach to an empty room. And so I appreciate the fact that there's been interest. I appreciate the fact that I've had your attention, that you, a lot of you guys have come as consistently as you have. I appreciate you, and I've also appreciated Paul. Speaking of Paul, in Romans 11, since we are coming to the end of the section... I want to do a recap of what we've discussed because it's going to reinforce the relevance of what we're talking about here in Romans chapter 11, because this is still Romans 9 to 11 addressing the question of Israel. And so it's going to be very important each week to set your understanding of why does this matter. And so to recap the question that Paul is addressing in Romans 9 to 11, I'm going to also recap the book. We've talked about the entire gospel. We've talked about the fact that God is a just judge and that all of us are going to stand before him and give an accounting for our lives. And that's a problem because all of us are guilty. And that means that we're going to meet God and we are going to be judged righteously for the guilt that we have. And none of us can even imagine what that means. And not only is that a problem because we're going to meet God and he's a just judge, but there's nothing we can do to get out of that. There's nothing you can do to escape God. You can't run away from him. No matter where you go, he's there. And when he does eventually come to you, there's nothing you can say that is going to avert his wrath. And there's nothing you can do in this life to earn his favor. Any course of action that you would want to take on your own, you can't. You're in a situation where you are absolutely doomed and there is nothing you can do to address that reality. And that's Romans 2 through 3. And then... Paul talked about the fact that, well, when you've come to the place of there's nothing I can do, then you're supposed to be primed and ready to hear someone say there's nothing you can do, but would you like to hear what God has done for you? And we find out that even though there's nothing we can do to avert judgment, God 
arranged for salvation, that Jesus Christ came, he lived a life that we couldn't live, a perfect life that merited salvation, a perfect life that earned heaven. And then he went to the cross anyway, and he died. And not only did he die, but God the Father came to Jesus the Son, and he met him as his torturer. And God the Father exacted every ounce of wrath that we ourselves deserved for every sin we've committed. And so because of that, we have been supplied a resource where we can have Jesus' righteousness accounted to us, and we can have our debt accounted to him. And all we have to do to apprehend that is trust him. Just put your faith in Christ, believe him, that he will cover your sins because God doesn't use human effort to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't bring salvation to the ones who help him. He brings salvation to the ones who trust him. And that's Romans 3 through 5. And then we find in Romans 6 through 8 that once you've done that, that once you've put your faith in Christ, once you've repented and believed that you are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, that God himself indwells you, that the moment you believe heaven is secure, your salvation is certain, but also you're given a resource that allows you to grow in righteousness even while you're still alive. And that no matter what you do and no matter what happens to you and no matter what is done to you, there is nothing that can wrestle that away from you. That as soon as you have placed your faith in Christ, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing someone else can do that would remove you from God's grace. And that's Romans 6 through 8. But now in Romans 9 through 11, the issue that Paul is addressing is that he's talking to a Gentile congregation that knows their Old Testament. And so they know to ask the question, well, Paul, God's making all of these promises. And you're saying that once I put my faith in Christ, I'm secure and I'm safe and I have nothing to worry about. But I'm looking at the nation of Israel and it looks like they've been set aside. I know my Old Testament, Paul. And so that means that I know there are a lot of promises that God has made to Israel that haven't been fulfilled and don't look like they're going to be fulfilled. And you're saying I can trust God's promises. And honestly, Paul, I'm not sure I believe you. Because I'm looking at Israel. And if Israel couldn't trust God's promises, those one directional, unconditional promises, why should I expect that I can trust God's promises? If God's a liar in their case, why wouldn't he be a liar in my case? And that's what Paul is answering in Romans 11. And this is the third week of that. And this is why that matters. All of the promises that God has made to us as Christians in the course of the book of Romans, from Romans 1 to Romans 8, are called into question if Israel couldn't trust God's word, because that means we can't trust God's word. And a lot hinges on whether or not God is a reliable promiser, whether you can actually trust the contracts and the covenants that God makes with you. Because if you can't, you have no security. You have no confidence in the promises God makes to you in the New Testament. You have no confidence of anything. You might get your way into heaven and stand before God, and you might be thinking about the fact that God said if you put your faith in Christ, then you'd have salvation. And then maybe as soon as you're actually there, standing outside of the pearly gates, God says, LOL, nah. And the basis of our confidence in God's promises to us is his character, even as he interacts with Israel. And that's why this matters. So in Romans chapter 9, Paul didn't answer the question, but he laid important groundwork. He established the fact that 
in order for God to keep his promises to the nation of Israel, does not require that every individual Israelite is saved. And so, not every Israelite has to receive God's promises for Israel as an entity to receive God's promises. And he also established the fact that God is completely sovereign. And that means that God is able to show grace to whomever he decides to show grace to. And all of that is in the power of God to either dispense or withhold to each individual as he chooses. Because if grace is required, it's not grace, it's a payment. And no one, not even an Israelite, is allowed to go up to God and say, God, give me what you owe me. So Paul establishes that fact. And then in Romans chapter 10, he lays in another important ground stone. And he says, those who are saved are those who believe. Israel has a zeal for God, but it is not a zeal according to knowledge. So even though Israel has a religious zeal, they don't believe the truth. And actually, faith in the truth is required for salvation. Salvation doesn't come any other way. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, we quoted Galatians, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, male or female, slave or free, salvation comes by belief in the gospel. There is no other avenue by which you can be saved. And that, of course, has implications for us as Christians and missionaries, because if the only hope someone has of salvation is trust in the content of the gospel, which is bound up in the person and work of Christ then that means we need to be extremely motivated to bring that to people. Because someone who doesn't have it or someone who hasn't accepted it will die and they will burn. And that's a heavy reality that we don't consider. And that also has... Yes, question? Yeah. Can confidence in salvation waver? Yeah. So... Yes. One of the things that Paul talks to us about in his letters to the Corinthians is he says, test yourself to see that you are in the faith. And he says in Philippians to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so as Christians, even as people who are genuinely saved, we are supposed to evaluate our salvation because Jesus says in Matthew 7 that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. So there are people who think they're Christians and aren't. And so even as Christians, we are supposed to evaluate our salvation, and the Bible does contain information about how we do that. So once you've put your faith in Christ, you are secure. That doesn't necessarily mean you always feel secure. But the reality is there even if you don't feel it. Good question. What was I saying? Uh, <laughs> what was I? <laughs> uh... <laughs> I'm almost where we are. I was in Romans 10, right? Um, faith must be in the truth, and that means that we need to share it. Uh, and that means that Jew and Gentile, no matter who you are, your salvation comes through faith in the truth. And so Israel, by being Israelite, does not have a specialness about that. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you must believe to be saved. Israel does not believe. Israel has laid aside the gospel. They have rejected their Messiah. And so it is absolutely no surprise that Israel is not receiving the promises. The basis, or I should say the requirement of anyone to receive God's salvation is belief. Israel does not have belief. So the first thing we see is God doesn't have to save every individual Israelite in order to keep his promises to the group. And the reason that the group of Israel is not receiving God's promises is because they aren't believing the gospel. They are rejecting God's Messiah. And so now we come into Romans chapter 11 and we still haven't answered the question 
because these are still one directional, unconditional promises that God has made to Israel and understanding that not every Israelite needs to be saved and understanding that they're not receiving the promises because they aren't believing that doesn't address the core question. But in Romans chapter 11, the things that he discussed in Romans chapter 9 and 10 are still going to be extremely relevant as he now gives us the answer. We've come to the knockout punch. We've come to the actual answer of the question of, can we trust God's promises to us, which is bound up in, can Israel trust God's promises to them? And now we start reading. And in chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, I say then, has God rejected his people? And what does he mean by his people? Israel. How do we know? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite a seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In this way, then, at the present time, a remnant, according to God's gracious choice, has come to be. And this is something that we talked about last week. And we settled and we ended on the promise that God has made to the nation of Israel that at every time throughout history, from Israel's inception as a nation until now and into the future, there has always been and there will always be a portion of the nation of Israel that does believe. And we said that this is a promise that is made to no other group. It is not true that there will always be believing Germans, that there will always be believing Mexicans, that there will always be believing Italians. And yet it is true that there will always be believing Israelites. We mentioned the fact that this is a Jewish religion that we believe in a Jewish Messiah, that we worship the God of Israel, that we uh, are apostles, we're all Jewish, that we read a book, that our scriptures were written by Jews. We are Gentiles, yes, this is a Jewish religion. Everything about this religion, is it screams God's faithfulness to Israel. And we talked about that last week, but I also want to comment on some of the general application that comes from that, because it is true that there's always Israelites that are saved, but the fact that God always has a remnant of people that are faithful to him, that's also true, not just about the people of Israel. And you can actually see this even going back through church history, that no matter what period of church history you go to, there's always a very large group that identify as Christians, and then there's a much smaller group that actually are Christians. And even looking across church history, you can see that kind of thing. You can see that kind of thing in the modern day. According to the Pew Research Center, because what's better in a sermon than statistics, 63% of the United States identifies as Christian. And that number is very low compared to previous years. But also, I would be personally absolutely shocked if 7% of the United States population were actually Christians. That would be mind-bogglingly high. There is a remnant. And you can look at things like that. The fact that that statistic of people identifying as Christians is going down. And you can be discouraged by that. You can be like, why is the church faltering? Why is the church going away? But the reality is, Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 7, 
enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus himself says that if you are a genuine Christian, you are going to find yourself in the minority. And so on one hand, there's this realization that even as the religiosity of the United States is declining, the actual number of Christians in it, there's no reason to expect that the actual church is getting weaker. The church in the United States and the church in the world generally is alive and well. The church, the genuine church, is actually thriving. How can I say that? Because the, the presence of the church is not a work of man, it's a work of God. God always preserves his church, not necessarily in every geographical area, not always necessarily in the same numbers, but the church is doing just fine. The fact that God always preserves a remnant means that, yes, we are always in the minority, but that minority is always there. Always. And that's a reassuring thing. And that has to do with the fact that the preservation of the church isn't something that we accomplish. And so this is obviously about Israel. And we spent more time on that last week, and I mentioned it this week, but I also am very encouraged personally by that wider application, and so I didn't want to not mention it. But it is about Israel. God preserves Israel. Even outside of the promises God has made to Israel, it is also identifiable that you can look at the nation of Israel and you can readily recognize God's grace to them specifically. And that's despite Israel's unfaithfulness. Okay. But since we've already talked about 11 through 10, uh, 1 through 10 last week, I'm not going to spend more time on it. But verse 7, what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but the chosen obtained it and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a a retribution to them and let their eyes be darkened to see not and to bend their backs forever. We talked in Romans chapter 9, the fact that God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over the people whom he saves. Do you see how that's relevant to chapter 11, verses 1 through 10? Because Paul just said, God is saving a small portion of Israel. He is intentionally not saving all of Israel. God is making an intentional choice that Israel in the modern day is not converting to him. Why? Verse 11. I say then, did they stumble so as to fall? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. That's interesting. And this is an interesting thing because Paul is writing to a Gentile congregation. And the thing he says to them is, you're doubting the security of God's promises to Israel And I'm going to show you the fact that God is being very faithful to Israel. But did you also know that the reason that Israel is being hardened is for your sake? That you as Gentiles, God is hardening Israel for your sake to save you. Also, God is saving you for Israel's sake to make them jealous. God is intentionally hardening Israel while saving a portion of them, but also the reason God is saving you as a Gentile is to make Israel jealous. 
That is, God's own people are not worshiping him the way that they're supposed to. God's going to all of the other people that have nothing to do with him, and he's saving them. So that as God is working through and blessing the church, that God's own people, Israel, will look at that and be made jealous by it, that they might come to their senses. It's almost like if, uh, this is one of the dumbest things to do in real life, but it's an analogy. If you've ever been in a situation where like maybe you liked a girl or you liked a guy, but they weren't that interested in you, and so you started chasing someone else to catch their attention, I feel like that's a somewhat standard rom-com plot. Also, it's a very dumb thing to do in real life. Don't do it. But that's basically what God's doing with Israel. God's like, you're not interested in me. And also he's sovereignly hardening them. But he's like, you're not interested in me. And so I'm going to provoke you to jealousy by going and being the God of the Gentiles. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk after. So we talked about, that's one of the things that we talked about in Romans 9 specifically, the question of how much of it falls upon Israel's own choice. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. It can be hard to wrap your head around. Yeah. Tell you what, man, I'm happy to walk through that with you, but that takes a longer answer than I have time for right now. But I am happy to walk through it with you. So, what was I saying? Um, God hardens Israel. In order to save Gentiles, he's sovereignly in control of that. Also, they're rejecting him, and so we're making him jealous. Verse 12. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will will their fullness be? So the thing that's interesting here is Paul is also noting, he's talking to a Gentile congregation, and you can kind of notice there might be a little bit of arrogance that can come from the fact that God is turning aside from his own people in order to save me. As amazing as Israel is, and as many promises as God has made to Israel, you know what's even better than Israel? You and I. Because if God's setting Israel aside in order to save Gentiles, then boy, oh boy, aren't we Gentiles pretty cool. And that can kind of be one of those conclusions you sort of come to. And one of the things that you're going to notice in this uh, passage of 11 to 25 is that Paul is addressing that attitude. That there might be this attitude that comes up of superiority uh, as a Gentile over the Israelite because God is hardening them in order to bring salvation to us. But Paul is going to phrase our salvation and say, the source of your salvation as a Gentile are the Jews. You're being saved for their sake. God is saving you in order to provoke them to jealousy. Also, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will will their fullness be? Here's the interesting thing about that. God's promises to Israel include the blessing of the entire world. And one of the things that's significant is that Israel's repentance is required for God to fulfill the promises he made to them in the Old Testament. For example, in Matthew 23, 37 to 39, Jesus, after speaking in the temple of Israel, he says this to the people. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you did not want it. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That Jesus refers to Israel and he says, I'm leaving and you will not see me again until you're begging me to come. That requires the repentance and the salvation of Israel. And when you think about the blessings that come with the return of Christ, think about how... mm, how much life can be harmed by a bad government. Think about how terrible it would be to live in Soviet Russia, starving to death because of your uh, socialist government, where all the Ukrainians are like, we kind of don't want to give you all of our food. And then Russia's like, LOL, we're going to shoot all of you. Well, now we don't have anyone to grow the food. Let's take a bunch of city people and send them to the farms and have them grow our food. The issue, of course, being that they don't know how. And the result is famines that kill a lot of people. How incompetent government can really harm the people living in it. Have you ever considered how wonderful it would be if governments didn't suck? I think about that often. How wonderful it would be to have a government leader who actually cares what God says, a government leader that's actually wise, a government leader that if they wanted to do something, and I thought it seemed absurd, but I'm thinking to myself, you're so incredibly wise that even though I think what you're wanting to do is odd, I'm actually totally chill with it because you probably know better than I do, and I know that you're motivated by my best interests. That describes zero governments that have ever existed, basically ever. But you know which government that describes perfectly? A government that will exist in the future with Jesus Christ at the head of it. There's going to come a time where Jesus Christ literally is the government. And not only are we going to have the natural benefits that come from having a perfect king literally ruling, but there are other things that come along with that of a rejuvenation of the entire world. When Jesus comes back and reigns over the world from the throne of Israel, the entire world is going to benefit massively from that. There is going to be astounding blessing that comes to every single person living on the planet despite the persistence of sin. And that doesn't come until Israel repents. The thing that stands between you and I and a perfect government is Israel's hard heart. Question? Yeah. So basically, there's a, well, in the millennial kingdom, there's still going to be sinful people. There's still going to be sinful people in everywhere you go. And so there's not going to be a perfect world in that sense. But, There will be peace because the way that you secure peace is by slaughtering the people that stand against you. And that is exactly what Jesus does. When Jesus comes back, the very first thing he does is he slaughters all of the armies that were joined together against Israel. And it says that his, uh, his robe is made red by the blood. Talks about blood that like rises to the knees of just all of the people that Jesus kills as soon as he comes back. 
And then after that, places like Zechariah talk about people who won't submit to the Messiah and the consequence being that their eyes and their tongue rot within them. And so Jesus enforces peace over the entire world for his millennial kingdom. And then at the end of his millennial kingdom, in the battle of Armageddon, Satan uh, stirs up the nations of the world to rebel against Jesus again. And then Jesus kills all of them again, resurrects everyone, righteous and unrighteous. And you have what's called the great white throne judgment, where the sheep and the goats are separated. Yeah, so there will be peace. It will be enforced peace. Because uh, Jesus uh, is really good at killing people. Exactly right. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> there will be peace. <laughs> Jesus is the Prince of Peace, as uh, Isaiah says. <sighs> All right. Uh, anyway, so there's going to be incredible blessing during the reign of Jesus on earth, and that will only be ushered in after the national repentance of Israel. Verse 14, uh, sorry, verse 13. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their, recon- if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? That the millennial kingdom and the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, the thing that sets all of that off is the repentance of Israel. And so Paul is laboring for that. He wants to save Gentiles in order to provoke Israel to jealousy so that they might all be saved and then usher in the goodness of the millennium. But which there's a very interesting thing I want to note here as well. So this do we have time for this? Yes, we do. Okay. So the thing that I want to point out to you with this is that Paul himself is an example of how you as an individual interact with the sovereignty of God. Where Paul, in the earlier section of chapter 11, has just noted that the reason that Israel is rejecting God is because God is supernaturally hardening them to do so. That Paul notes that the sovereign will of God is the rejection of Israel, and that he's doing that for the sake of saving Gentiles, And Paul, as a response, does everything he can to save Israel anyway. In the book of Acts, Paul always goes to the synagogue first and tries to evangelize Jews. And after the Jews reject him, he then goes to the Gentiles. And right here, his stated purpose is to provoke Israel to jealousy in order to bring about their salvation. So Paul, aware of the fact that God is sovereignly hardening Israel, is devoting all of his effort to the salvation of Israel either directly or indirectly. Here's why that's interesting. Sometimes you can be in a situation where you feel like, I don't necessarily know if it's God's sovereign will to save this person. So if I evangelize them, am I therefore acting against the will of God? Is that a sinful thing for me to do, to evangelize someone that God doesn't want saved? Well, as a person, you have no idea what God's plan is for any individual person. As a Christian, as we talked about in Romans 10, your job is to be motivated by the good of the people around you, including their salvation. And so you are supposed to labor and labor hard to save people, even people that God has no intention of saving. Because one, you have no idea what his plan is. And even if they're hard right now, I'll get to you in a second. Even if they're hard right now, God might soften them later. 
And also, if God doesn't plan to save them, you're not going to thwart his will. But by going to each person and trying to save them, God's going to use you to save the ones he did want to save. And so even as you, quote, act against God's will, you find yourself being a happy agent of his will anyway. And Paul himself is an example of that. Even if you don't necessarily understand exactly how God's sovereignty works together with everything else, you can still function and work hard at the things that you're supposed to do and then not concern yourself with what God may or may not do with it. It's it's not your job to worry about that. And so Paul, after identifying a group of people that God is specifically hardening, directs all of his efforts at saving them anyway. And so... As Christians, we don't necessarily understand God's will, what he's going to work out a situation to accomplish. It's not our job to. Our job is to do everything we can to evangelize people anyway. I'm glad to hear it. All right. So that's a fun little observation. Verse 16. And I'm going to start picking up the pace. Verse 16. And if in the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. And so this is a discussion of the source of something spreading and making everything else holy. I don't know how holy water works because I'm not a Catholic, but I've heard it's something like if you take a little bit of holy water and add it to water that's not holy, it purifies the whole thing. And I might be crazy, but it's kind of like that. We're going to use that as an illustration. So like a small dose of something purifies the entire thing. And so the origin purifies the rest. And the point that Paul is making is that you as a Gentile owe your salvation to the Jews. We said again, there might be a tendency to have yourself be lifted up and become prideful towards the Jews as the Gentile. And Paul is clarifying, you need to understand that the source of your salvation is Israel. God's salvation came through Israel. Jesus Christ was a Jew. God chose Israel to be the nation that he worked through. The the thing that's gatekeeping God's eventual ownership and kingdom over the entire world is the Jews. God has chosen to bless the entire world through the Jews. And as a Gentile, you should not look at Jews and be arrogant. You owe them your salvation. And the reality is you owe God your salvation. But you need to understand that God brought you that salvation through the Jews. So anti-Semitism, for example, would be a big no-no. All right, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast against them, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. And he uses this example of like taking a not natural branch and then adding it into a an existing tree so that the branch is able to glean its sustenance from the original tree. It's like a botany thing. And if you've ever seen videos of someone like grafting plants into each other, it seems like it shouldn't be possible. It's weird, man. But you can take like a branch of a different tree and graft it into the stem of another one. And then that somehow just like heals together and grows just fine. You couldn't do that with people like cut someone in half and just give you someone else's legs. It's like, Oh, your legs don't work. Chop. Uh, let's just put you on this one, wrap you up a little bit, leave you in the sun for a few days, and then now you'll be able to walk around just fine. It's cool that plants can do that, and that has nothing to do with any of the other stuff we were talking about. Now, 
But that's the illustration he uses, that we're like random branches that were found on the ground somewhere, and then God came by, and he picked us up, and he put us onto the tree of Israel, where we were able to glean the benefit of the blessings that God was working out through them. Don't be arrogant towards Israel. They're the source of your blessing. Okay, 19. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be haughty, that's prideful, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. And this harkens back to Romans 10. Salvation comes by trust in the truth. In the same way that Israel was not spared when they didn't believe, you as a Gentile don't have any special standing. If you don't believe, you will be broken off as well. Not even Israel's covenants and relationship with God could save them when they rejected the gospel. So as a Gentile, you don't have anything. And so you shouldn't look at Israel and think that you have a special status because they're being hardened for your sake. But instead, you should look at the fact that even Israel is able to face the fierce judgment of God. And if Israel can, you certainly can. And so you and I should be humble towards Israel, not prideful. Behold, the, uh, behold then, in verse 22, the kindness and the severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. But they also, if they, do, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? And so, for example, you could kind of simplify that. And you could say... As a Gentile, don't learn from the fact that God hardened Israel for your salvation, that God has set them aside permanently. In other words, don't be an amillennialist. God has a plan for Israel. God has not set them aside permanently. And as Gentiles, to think that we have replaced Israel in essence to think that we have replaced Israel permanently, to think that we have received the God of Israel because they weren't good enough to keep him, and now he's ours. Arrogant. Wrong. And sinfully inaccurate. God has made promises to Israel. We haven't replaced them. Not finally. Because in verse 25, Paul says, I do not want you to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins." From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And verse 29, that is a 
Amazing verse. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That should be music to your ears. Because as a Christian, that's what your life is based on. Your life is based on the honesty and the promises of God. And that is exactly what we're defending. In the beginning of this, we, we said, you know, the Gentile might say to Paul, it looks like God has revoked his promises to Israel. How can I trust him? And Paul's answer is finally, those promises will be fulfilled. All of them. All of the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament will be fulfilled. How? God is going to bring about the salvation of the entire nation. That at some point in the future, the entire nation of Israel is going to turn to the, to the religion of Jesus. They're going to repent and they're going to believe. And once they have done that, God is going to fulfill all of his promises to them. He's going to give them the land he promised them. He's going to give them the kingdom that he promised them. It's going to happen. And you can see how that relies on an understanding of God's sovereignty too. Because he says, For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so now also these have become disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, that he may show mercy to all. That God is going to use his mercy to the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy and save them. And as a Christian... That makes sense because you can look at your own salvation and you can say, well, I know what I was like before I became a Christian. I'm aware of the fact that I never would have chosen God. I was hopelessly lost. And at a, at a moment in time, God changed me and he made himself attractive to me. And I repented and I became a Christian and my life was changed. If God can do that to me, of course he can do that to others. So God is going to do that for Israel. It's going to be the same process, but on a larger scale. And when it says all Israel will be saved, does that mean that every single individual Jew is going to convert? Or does that just mean that a large enough portion of Israel converts that it could be said all of them converted? Well, it's ambiguous here. And I originally had three Old Testament prophets that we were going to read through, but we're low on time. So I'm going to read you one. I'm going to read you two. But there are Old Testament prophecies that speak about the national conversion of Israel. One of my favorites is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 depicts Israel looking back on Jesus and saying this. In Isaiah 53, 3 through 6, he says, He was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Have you guys ever heard the worship song, Man of Sorrows? It's one of my favorite worship songs. This is where it's from. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. So we rejected him. And in verse four, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of our peace fell upon him and by his wounds we are healed. 
All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but Yahweh caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That is what the entire nation of Israel is going to cry out. And that is what you call the gospel. They're going to look at Jesus. They're going to look at the cross and they're going to say, we killed our own Messiah. But he was saving us from our very sins. And there's going to be that moment of clarity. And in Zechariah 12, 10 through 14, it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like in the morning of, hey, dad, Dramon, in the plain of Megiddo, and in the land they will mourn, each family alone, the family of the house of David alone, and their wives alone, and the family in the house of Nathan alone, and their wives alone, and the family in the house of Levi alone, and their wives alone, and the family of the Shimeites alone, and their uh, wives alone, all of the families that relate, that remain, each family and their wives alone. It's ambiguous in Romans, but when you look at the prophets of the Old Testament, Every individual in Israel is saved. Now, there's going to come a time in the future where God turns on the lights for all of them. And then he's going to give them the promises. Verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That this is God's plan of salvation. That from the beginning of time, God wrote a story. That he was going to send salvation through a specific group of people that he was going to have that people reject him for a time to save all the nations. And then after having done that, he was going to use people that were not a people to provoke to jealousy and to save people that were his people. That you might have expected that God's people would be such a shining beacon of his glory that all of the Gentiles looked at Israel and were like, I want some of that. But God was like, actually, I'm going to do what's called a pro-gamer move. I'm going to, instead of using Israel to save the Gentiles, I'm going to flip that script. I'm going to have Israel reject me, my own people. And then I'm going to have all of the other Gentiles be like, but Israel, have you seen how cool God is? And then Israel's going to be like, wait, Ro, seriously? And then they're going to get saved. Because who was expecting that? Uh, Basically, Paul's saying no one would have expected God to bring about salvation that way, but God just kind of did because he can. Because God's cool. And so... (laughs) What we've seen from the book of Romans, to wrap it all up, the book of Romans is about the gospel. And one of the simplest ways to think about the gospel is that it's what happens when God's character intersects with ours. That God is a holy and righteous judge. That God is bottomlessly merciful and gracious. That God is completely honest and trustworthy. 
And when all of that character of God intersects with a person, what you find is God is just and righteous and we are sinners. That means that we have doom. But God is bottomlessly merciful and gracious. And so he reached into our doom and he provided salvation. And that salvation is attained through us simply trusting in the honesty and the trustworthiness of God. That the basic of the gospel is if you know who God is and you know who we are, the gospel is just what happens when those collide. Justice, grace, and honesty. And then we need to respond to that justice, grace, and honesty. And that honesty is validated even by God's interactions with Israel. And so it might seem like this random, unimportant thing. Why do I care how God interacts with a nation that I'm not in? Because if God doesn't keep his promises to Israel, you have no hope that he'll keep his promises to you. And what Paul answers is, but he will keep his promises to Israel. Therefore, he will keep his promises to you. And that's a good thing. Let's bow our heads and pray it out. Lord, thank you for the book of Romans. Thank you for a look at your character as it relates to us. Thank you for allowing Paul to be inspired by your spirit that after a career of evangelizing others, that he then writes a letter of the most important realities to understand if we are going to understand the gospel you have given to us and if we are going to transmit that gospel to others. I pray that you would help us to be good evangelists, but first and foremost, that you would help us to accept this message ourselves. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to everyone that you interact with, to the Israelites, and to us. I pray that you would help us not to be arrogant towards your people, but instead, Lord, that we would be humble towards them, because you have brought us salvation through them. Amen. So at this point, uh, since we went... Thank you for listening to this episode of Shaking Scripture's Leaves. If you would like to reach out to me or read blog posts on other issues, you can visit my website at shakingscripturesleaves.com. I'll see you next time.